our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to verses 9, no, verse 29. Um, and while you're turning that up in your Bible, let's be reminded that when we read the Bible, we're reading the living word of God. God reveals himself primarily through scripture, and so the Bible shapes and guides everything we do here. So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Congratulations, we did it. We're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone's like, yeah, finally, that's not the reaction I was after. Uh, You're in for a shock today because Jesus uh, doesn't finish it with like, well done guys, go and chill out. He actually ups the ante, he ups the challenge. Um, and that's what we're going to see today. Uh, before we start, I want to uh, just tell, uh, give you a quick kind of analogy of what we're talking about. Uh, does anyone watch the program Grand Designs? Yeah, a few people. Yes, Louise does. Love that show. Can't get enough. It's really, really good. I want to be a rich hippie like Kevin MacLeod. Um, so the, there's this one uh, a couple of years ago they did where these, this couple were uh, renovating. If you ever noticed, it's always couples and then they have a baby halfway through before it's finished and they all run out of money. It's weird. Um, but they were renovating an old barn in a field. So it was a stone barn. And they started working on it. And uh, halfway through, one of the inside walls collapsed. And then they realized there was no foundations. So it was just a stone barn just built on the soil. And so what they had to do was they had to dig out underneath it and prop the building up and, and pour concrete in and actually make a foundation. And the point is that foundations are important, right? You don't see them. They're underground but they're the most important part of any structure. So uh, I was nerding out on this this week because I like engineering and weird stuff like that. Um, some of the most, I, I was looking at some of the most iconic buildings in the world. So think of the Empire State Building. Everyone can imagine what that looks like. The foundations go down 16 meters. That's 52 feet deep for this massive skyscraper. But that's nothing compared to the Shard in London. Anyone been in the Shard? Haven't been there. Davy has. I want to go up there someday. Tallest building in, in Europe. Uh, the, the foundations go down uh, to 53 meters. That's 174 feet. They bore, they bore down in, made these concrete piles, uh, 174 feet. But it, we got a picture on the screen of the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Uh, they have... This building has the deepest foundations of any building in the world, right? So the foundations go down to 114 meters below ground. Uh, uh, That's, let me see what I say, uh, 374 feet. Uh, When they were building this, uh, this might not interest you, but I thought it was cool. It was the, they they were pouring concrete 24-7 for two years just in the foundations before you could even see any of that. Foundations are important. Without, without that foundation, that building doesn't stand. All that weight. 
And without a foundation, your building can look good. You could build it on the, on the, on the ground without a foundation. But it would fall down the first weather that comes along. And this is kind of what Jesus is talking about today. He's using this analogy of, 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 of foundations, right? And so right at the end of his sermon, we've seen over the last three weeks, uh, he uses these three analogies. Um, he, he speaks of two paths. So you've got the, 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 the narrow path that leads to life and the, the broad path that leads to destruction. And then he talks about two kinds of teacher. You've got the truth teachers, the teachers of truth who, who lead us closer to Jesus and the false teachers that, that lead us to hell. Often they lead us to the place that they deny exists. And then today we have two kinds of builder. We have the wise builder and we have the foolish builder. But there's a few things that these three analogies have in common and we're going to pull them together briefly. They all speak about the difference between external appearances and internal reality. Right? Thomas told us this last week. So it's, it's this kind of major theme that we've been looking at for the whole Sermon on the Mount over, this, over the last few months. Jesus is calling us to have this, this deeper, this internal right standing before God, this right way of living that, that isn't based on, on what's on the outside. And in, in this, this theme of, of two choices, the two ways, so you, the, Jesus' hearers must be careful in their hearing and consider their response to Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount not just so that uh, we'll have nice rules for life or, or we'll think he's an amazing teacher, but he teaches to produce obedience. He, he wants us to put these things into practice. All these metaphors, all these three metaphors have the same theme of doing the will of God. That's the, that's the Bible's way of putting it. And, and actually, that our obedience, uh, our, our, our entrance into the kingdom depends on our obedience to Jesus. And so we see that true disciples aren't just those who, who merely kind of externally obey or appear to be righteous or good living, as we say in Northern Ireland. I feel like I've said good living almost every Sunday for the past three months. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's not just being good living. It's about a transformed heart. It's unseen. And Jesus wraps up his sermon, and like I said, he doesn't kind of get gentler or, or get more jolly. He gets really serious, and he keeps up in the challenge, up in the challenge. He said, guys, you've been listening to this, and it's decision time. What are you going to do with these things? I, I, I've been teaching you. It's time to choose. Remember how he starts the Sermon on the Mount? We saw this at the end of Matthew chapter 4. He's going around, and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And elsewhere in Mark's gospel tells that he's saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And no one likes that language. No one likes being told, repent. It's like whenever you hear those words, you think of like someone with the sandwich board on, you know, walking down the street. That's what we think of. But this is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to a changed life. And so as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after our marathon, the, the, the question for us, this is the question that's facing every one of us this morning. What are you going to do with Jesus' words? What are you going to do with Jesus' teaching? Are you, going to, are you going to hear the teaching of Jesus and do nothing? Or are you going to hear the teaching of Jesus and obey it and do something? Let your life be changed. I, I want to pray because uh, I need help and we trust God for help. So, so let me pray for us um, and then we're going to dive into our passage this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Thank you, your word is alive and it's speaking to us. Thank you, you're speaking to us. But Lord, we know that we're distracted and sinful and um, tired and, and weary. 
Um, and Lord, we need your help. Speak clearly to us and give us hearts that listen. Um, and may our lives be changed and may you be glorified because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as we try to answer that question, as we consider that question, what are we going to do with these words? Uh, in this passage, we see three men, right? There's three men that are mentioned here. Firstly, there's a wise man, okay? So if you've got your Bible open, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some uh, Bibles in the back corner. I forgot to say that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just take that home with you. Um, have a look at verses 24 and 25. This is what Jesus says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So sometimes we read this passage. I don't know if you grew up in church. Um, you maybe have heard this, that, that Jesus is speaking about Christians and non-Christians, like people are saved and people are not saved. Um, but that's not what Jesus is doing here, right? Notice that he says, everyone who hears my words. Everyone who hears my words and, and does does." And does them. And later on he says, everyone who hears my words and does not do them. And Jesus isn't talking about uh, contrast between saved people and unsaved people. He's talking about uh, people who are in the Christian community, right? It's a choice between hearing Jesus and doing and hearing Jesus and not doing. He's emphasizing the importance of hearing his teaching and putting that into action. And the person who does this, he's like the wise man. He builds his house in the rock, right? I, I, in my head, I always imagine it's like a house on the beach. I don't know why, maybe because the other one's sand. But like, I can imagine like a nice beach house. That's, what, that's the image that I have in my head. When you're building your house, you, you dig down to the bedrock, and that's what you build on. That's why these massive buildings put so deep concrete that goes right down to the rock, you don't just build on top of the soil. The soil gets washed away. It gets eroded, right? So uh, the first time it rains, the soil starts to get washed away. If there's a flood, the, 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 the soil under the house can get washed away. And if that happens, then the house falls down. The building falls down. And Jesus says, if you want to have a solid foundation, if you want to build your life on something that's going to last, then don't just hear my words. Obey them. It's not enough to just hear Jesus. We need to put it into action. Because um, actions speak louder than words, don't they? Right? All right? Think of someone who tells you that they're really into something. So last week, or, yeah, last week I uh, was away. Um, uh, I was away for the week, and I got chatting to someone. I mentioned something about, uh, oh yeah, we're going to France in a couple of weeks, and we're going to see the end of the Tour de France. It's going to be great. And I mentioned this, and then this guy told me that I didn't know. He told me he's really into cycling. He's like, oh, just love cycling, blah blah blah. But the more I talked to him, I was like, you, you've never seen a cycling race in your life. Like, you really don't know what you're talking about. And I didn't say that to him, but that's what was kind of going on in my head. Because it's easy to say you love something without your actions ever backing it up, right? But I have another friend, a friend who lives here, and, and you, 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 he doesn't even have to open his mouth. You just look at his life and you're like, that guy loves cycling. He eats cycling, breathes cycling, sleeps cycling. I'm not, this is not, I'm not trying to get you all into cycling. I'm just saying that the evidence is there. He doesn't have to say anything. You just look at him and you're like, that guy loves cycling. And how we live indicates where our hearts lie, right? Like if I say I love my wife, but I, I never act on that, will you look at me and say there's someone who loves his wife? Of course not. 
And this is what Jesus is getting at here. Our response to his teaching is, is extremely important. In fact, he says it's eternally important. Because our response to the teaching, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount kind of uh, shows us the value we really place in the kingdom of God. And this is why right throughout this sermon, Jesus is putting this emphasis on obedience, right? And, and, and last week, uh, Thomas was absolutely right to emphasize this. Jesus is not endorsing salva- salvation by works. He's not saying, do all this stuff. And then you'll be saved. Do all this stuff when you get into the kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom is granted to those who believe. Right? Salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And we'll never, ever, ever falter on that. Nothing I bring will ever save me. But we see in these verses that Jesus emphasizes obedience. Obedience to Jesus, that means that we survive the storm. And disobedience means that we, we fall in the storm. And maybe you're thinking, right, well, you're contradicting yourself, right? You've just said that salvation is by grace alone, but yet you're telling me I also have to do all this stuff. How can that be? How, how is it possible for Jesus to say, uh, and other teachers to, uh, to say that salvation is by grace alone, but yet it seems like he's saying that our entrance into the kingdom of God depends on our obedience and and doing stuff. Well, let me take a second to answer that because this is really important. There are some, there are some false teachers, right, that will tell us that that the Bible contradicts itself. That's what they want to do. They want to cause controversy and and, and lead us astray. And and Thomas did a great job last week of warning us against those people. And I, I... really don't want to be one of those. But this is not true. The Bible never contradicts itself. Jesus, God can't contradict himself. I can, because I'm a hypocrite. But Jesus can never contradict himself. And so what's happening is that, 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 that Jesus and the biblical authors, they, they assume that there's a cause and effect relationship between being made alive in Jesus and, and obeying Jesus. Okay, we're made alive in Jesus, and then we're obedient to him. There's a correlation between faith and fruit, if you like, between salvation by grace and the works that flow out of that, right? Faith alone makes us right with God, but it's not, it's not the faith which is alone. If, you t- if we talk about the, the faith that saves us, we call that saving faith. Saving faith is a working faith. Saving faith is the sort of faith that, that, that blossoms into obedience. We, we talked a lot about fruit last week. And so the point is this, what we do in obedience to Jesus is evidence that we are in Jesus. Let me say that again because that's important. What we do in obedience to Jesus is evidence that we are in Jesus. And if there's no obedience to Jesus, then you kind of have to ask yourself, am I really in Jesus? What's, what's happening there? And so we can safely say that, that the works are, in this certain sense, uh, necessary for entrance into the kingdom. But not because, uh, not because works earn forgiveness, but because works are evidence of the faith that's already there. Our faith in Jesus isn't an inactive one. Christianity isn't just a, a subject to learn. It's a life to be lived, Right? This is, the, this is the path to flourishing, Jesus says. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been looking at what it is to live a flourishing life, and it's obedience to Jesus in all these areas. 
That's how you flourish. That's, that's what good human life looks like. Jesus says that, that this obedience consists of hearing his words and acting on it. He says, these words of mine, in other words, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've been hearing these words of Jesus for the past few months, haven't we? This teaching on, uh, on what it looks like to be in the kingdom. And these, uh, this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, if you hear and obey these words of mine, this teaching, this Sermon on the Mount, that's the way to human flourishing. So let me ask you, in the past few months since we started this, has anything changed? Has anything changed in your life because of this? What has been your heart obedience to Jesus? Just for a second, let, let's reflect on these things. Here's some lessons that Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a challenge for us. This is a challenge that Jesus lays down for us this morning. Do we feel a deeper sense of spiritual poverty? That is, like, do we feel uh, our need for God even more clearly? Or are we just proud of our, our good works and our right living? Do we think we're okay? Do we grieve more deeply over sin than we used to? Or does sin not really bother us that much? When we mess up and we know we betray God, does that not really bother us that much? Or does it cause us to mourn? Are we more meek than we used to be? Or are we just still arrogant and proud? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or are we just seeking to congratulate ourselves on how well we're doing? Do we show more mercy to others? Oh, that's a, that's a punch in the gut right there, isn't it? Do we show more mercy to others or are we self, as self-absorbed as ever? Is our obedience external only? Do we just obey the rules for appearance's sake or is our passion for purity a matter of our heart's desire? What steps have we taken to preserve and promote peace in the community of Jesus? And among our friends and neighbors? Are we peacemakers? How have we responded to situations of conflict that have come up over the last couple of months since we've been studying this stuff? Or how, how, do, how do we work to reconcile ourselves to others where the conflict has been there or, 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 or stop it before it emerges? Are we, are we peacemakers? Are we willing to, to be used and exploited and even persecuted simply because we live righteously for Christ's sake? Has your hey, we're not even halfway through yet, guys. <laughs> Has your relationship with the world changed after hearing what Jesus said about our being salt and light? Can you remember way back when we looked at salt and light? What steps have you taken to deal with the anger in your heart uh, that you normally just easily give into? How have you dealt drastically and radically with the sin in your life, or, or do you just try to continue to try and figure out ways to get away with with, with not just crossing some moral boundary line? Do you have a, a greater love for and a, and a greater commitment to the truth after hearing Jesus talking about oath-taking? How, how, how you use your words changed? How have, your, how have you treated your enemies in the past few months? Have you happily gone above and beyond uh, to, to, when, when someone intrudes or causes you inconvenience? How about the last few times when you gave money to someone in need or, or, or gave to the church? 
How frequently have you thought about that sense and thought, man, I'm glad I did that. I did a good job there. What is your attitude towards money? Does finance still control how you make major life decisions? And finally, has your prayer life changed at all? Is it more God-centric than it used to be? These are real challenges that, that Jesus has been laying down the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount. And here he says it's decision time. This, this, thing, this sermon I'm preaching is to cause a change in your life. And by obeying all these things and by allowing ourselves the discomfort of being challenged, that's the path to flourishing, isn't it? It's a kindness of Jesus to, to challenge us in this way. You see, real faith in Jesus means that we obey his teaching. Real love for Jesus means that, that we do what he says. John, uh, Jesus says in John 14, 15, he says, listen, if you love me, you will obey my commands. We can't base our righteousness. We can't hope that we have right standing before God just because we're, kinda, we're, we're a decent person. We don't really hurt anyone. We need to have faith in Jesus, that true faith that produces fruit. This is what love looks like, right? How messed up would my marriage be? Sorry, Healy, I'm using you a lot today. How messed up would my marriage be if I said to everyone else, I talked about how much I love Haley, but yet I never said it to her and I never paid attention to a word she says. She might tell you I do that anyway. <laughs> Definitely guilty of not paying enough attention. But what if I just ignored everything she said and I never told her I loved her and I never spent any time devoted to her? How quickly would my marriage fall? It's, 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 it's acting a certain way, which is a foundation. It's the same for our relationship with Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Then do what he says. Meditate on his word and put it into practice. Our, our, our obedience to Jesus is our firm foundation. How do we build our lives on a solid foundation? By obeying the words of Jesus. Wisdom is obeying Jesus. The wise man hears the word of God and puts it into practice. But what about those who hear the words of Jesus and, and don't obey? Jesus likens these to our second person, our second man this morning, the foolish man. So back in our Bibles again, uh, verses 26 and 27 of Matthew chapter 7. So he's talked about the wise man uh, who builds his house in the rock. And then he says, verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine, everyone who hears my teaching and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the rain came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See, the wise man is the one who hears and obeys, but the foolish man, literally, this is quite interesting, it's funny, the, the, the word in the Greek here is, is moron. That's, it's the same root word, moron. It's idiotic. It's foolish to hear the words of Jesus and, and don't put them into practice. You see, the only difference between uh, the, the two men is their response to Jesus' teaching. That's the only difference. Jesus doesn't, say that, Jesus doesn't say that the foolish person is the one who uh, never hears his words. He says you're foolish if you hear it and don't do it. Both men have heard these words, but only one has acted on them. You see, it's totally possible to come to church. It's totally possible to pray. It's totally possible to be part of a missional community. It's totally possible uh, to, to, to give to the church. It's totally possible to stand up here and preach. 
and not obey the words of Jesus. There's no limit to the depth that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay. It's totally possible to call yourself a Christian and not be in the kingdom of God. It's even possible to believe that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven and not be in the kingdom of God. You can believe all those things and not do what he says. Jesus isn't contrasting Christians and non-Christians. Both these houses look the same. But remember the thing about foundations. The foundations are hidden from view. They're under the ground. So you can imagine looking at these two new built houses on the beach, in my mind. They're on the beach, nice beachfront houses. And, and, and they both look nice. They've, they're both well presented. They, they, they maybe have a veranda. They're, they're painted really well. There's some flowers outside. And they, they look exactly the same on the outside. They're both perfectly respectable and nice. And you know what that is in our context? That's cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. It's the kind of Christianity that you, you tick a box in a survey, right? Or, or when you have to do a job application. Yeah, I guess I'm Christian. It's the kind of Christianity that says that, that being Protestant or Catholic is more about your political identity than your identity in Jesus. And we see this so often in Northern Ireland. Remember, you, ever, you know that joke about the... The, the Jew walking down the Falls Road, Kibbe the Shankar Road, whatever you want, uh, walking down the Falls Road and, and someone says, uh, are you a Catholic or Protestant? He said, no, I'm a Jew. And they're like, well, you're a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew. <laughs> That's it. This is, what, this is what we deal with in Northern Ireland. We're so good at being Christian. We're so good at participating in church. We're so good at being good living. And we go to church maybe because our parents did or, 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 and they went because their parents did or, or we look around and, we, uh, and we, we kind of ease our own conscience. We go, well, I'm not as bad as him. I haven't done that, so I'm probably okay. Or, wow, I, you, know, you know, I pay my taxes. I, I go to work every day. My kids are, my kids are doing okay. Like, I, I'm fine. And we end up having this false faith which we just compare ourselves to, to other people and the, and the social norms and we think we're okay. But the truth is when we compare ourselves to God that we, we realize that we fall far short. Romans 3 says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that means that no matter how good you think you are, you're still an unachievable distance away from God's holy standards. And it's when we think that we're okay when we're, we're building, uh, that we're building our lives on a false foundation. We're building on sand. And Paul says in Galatians that if we're basing our right standing with God on our ability to do good, then we're actually living like Christ died for no purpose. When we think like this, we're actually nullifying Jesus' suffering. And when we hear his teaching on greater righteousness, and we hear his teaching on heart motivation, and we hear his teaching on this true right standing before God, this greater righteousness and we do nothing with that, it's like we take his suffering and we throw it back in his face. And for most of us in Northern Ireland, it's this kind of crossless Christianity that's our biggest danger. And we can all so easily fall into it, can't we? It's so easy where we live. Maybe if we lived in, in a different context, in London or New York or something, I wouldn't be saying these things today in the same way. But, but it's this cultural, comfortable Christianity it's such a danger for us. And John, John, 1 John tells us that if we do this, then we're actually deceiving ourselves. And it's deception that leads to ruin and death. 
Jesus, in Jesus' illustration, both the houses look the same. You can't tell anything about the foundations from looking at a building, right? When we looked at those two towers, I can tell you what the foundations look like. But the foundations are the most important part, and they're hidden from view. So uh, I, I love this. In, this. in this most genius piece of, 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 of sermon delivery, Jesus layers on the same theme that he's been talking about the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount, the thing that we've been studying for months now. And this is it. What's important is what's hidden. The most important thing is this heart righteousness, and no one else can see your heart. No one else knows your motivations. No one else knows what's going on in the depths of your mind. The most important thing to Jesus is what's in the secret place of your heart. That's what, it's what's unseen that counts. Anyone can give to the needy and look good while they're doing it, right? But what's in your heart while you give? Jesus is re-emphasizing this need for, for deeper, truer, greater heart-level righteousness that's based on a transformation that comes by being brought from death to life by trusting in him. The heart's transformed by faith, trusting his death and resurrection, and then comes from that as this new life. But not only do both the houses look the same, they both face exactly the same weather in, our, in Jesus' parable, don't they? Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. Both the houses faced the same storms. And here's the thing. It's in the storm that the quality of the foundation is revealed. It's only when it's been tested that you know how good the foundation is. So what are these storms? Well, there's two parts to it, I think. Some people differ on this, but I think it's both and. Uh, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom, right? Oh, got a new shelf for my water, and I've just spilt half my water in there, so there you go. I did better when it was on the floor, to be honest. Um, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching about the now and not yet kingdom, right? So it's now and it's not yet. So uh, it's these truths that affect our present, current reality that kind of ripple and have a trajectory right through into all of eternity. So if we want to keep the, the building analogy going, right? Imagine... Um, Imagine a new housing development that's being built, right? A nice posh place. My in-laws always say that they don't live in a housing estate, they live in a housing development because uh, they like to think they're posh. Um, hope they don't listen to this. They probably will. Sure. Um, but, but whenever that's happening, right, there's always one house that's finished first. They always build one house first. So, uh, and, and, and that house, the job of that house is to show what the full development is like. And that's the church. That's what the church is. The building site has been bought, the ground has been cleared, the plans have been made, and the foundations are laid. And the church is the show home, is the first show home for the full development of the kingdom. Do you get it? It's now and it's not yet. We, the church, practice the kingdom now, and we will live it fully realized and fully developed forever. And so if we think of it this way, then the storms that Jesus talks about are the same, now and not yet. You have the now storms and the not yet storms. So, so the now storm is, is, is kind of what we might call the storms of life, right? Everyone's heard that phrase, the storms of life. The suffering that we go through here and now in our earthly life. And, and, I, and we, we talk about this a lot because we really do in Village want to have a good theology of suffering. 
Because it's really important for us to understand that Jesus never says that you're going to be, once you become a Christian, you're going to be protected from suffering. Okay? It's not, it's not, a, it's not a case that you, you trust Jesus and then all of a sudden you never face any troubles or suffer in your life. That doesn't happen. It's not just non-Christians who suffer. And, and I know that, that even though we're a small church, loads of you have faced significant suffering, sickness, bereavement, poor mental health, financial insecurity, marriage problems. Just two years ago, I watched my sister go from full health, fit, not just healthy, but fit and healthy, to dying of leukemia within six months. And she loved Jesus. It wasn't like this was some kind of wrath of God being poured out in her. We don't escape suffering just because we follow Jesus. But the difference is, the difference between people who are in Jesus and people who are outside Jesus is that when we suffer, our foundation holds firm, right? So think about the foundations of a house. The foundations don't shelter a house from the storm, but they hold the house up during the storm. It's not a wall around the house that protects it, but it supports the house. And it's the same way Jesus is saying obedience to Jesus uh, isn't protection from suffering, but it is protection in suffering. That's the hope that we have. We know that when we're in Jesus, suffering isn't God's wrath being poured out in us. It's, it's this loving discipline of a father caring for us and shape, changing us and shaping us to be more like him. Like, like God loves you so much that there's no lens he won't go to to make you more like him. Like Peter walking on the water. Maybe you don't know this story, but Jesus' disciples are in a boat. I love this because they get in the boat and then Jesus is like, nah, I'm not coming with you. I'll just uh, meet you on the other side. Like, he's clearly up to something. Like, I'll just meet you on the other side. Jesus, I see. How are you going to get over there? Um, but they're on the boat and it's the middle of the night and a storm comes up and they're all freaking out and then they look out and they see someone walking on, on, see someone walking on the water and they, of course they think it's a ghost. They're like, oh, it's a ghost. But then uh, they realize it's Jesus and then Peter says, Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, then tell me to come to you and I'll, I'll walk to you. And you know how Jesus, uh, you know what happens? In the middle of the storm, Peter listens to the voice of his master and obeys him and walks on the water, not on a sunny day on a calm lake, but in the middle of the night in a storm. He walks through the storm by obeying the words of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is partly why Jesus is pushing obedience so much. Because how are you going to endure? How are we going to endure? So we need to keep listening. And when those times of trial come, and they will come, we trust and obey. We keep listening to our master's voice and we obey him because he's the only one that's going to guide us through. That's the now storms. But what about the not yet? Not, the not yet? This is the bit that's slightly harder to talk about. See, but we need to hear and understand what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus isn't just talking about the storms of life. He's, he's referring to this cataclysmic reality, this final and utterly devastating storm of the future judgment of God. Right? The, the Greek word that's used for wise here, this same word appears seven times in Matthew's gospel, and almost every time it's used to, some, to describe someone who, who wisely prepares for the coming of the Messiah. So we can't deny that Jesus is talking about this final judgment, this final reality. 
And the truth is that the storm of, of God's judgment is coming for all of us. And, and we know this because the storm, that image of a storm for God's judgment is used so often in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's so common that, that in, in throughout this book that we can't ignore it. The Bible doesn't have that many themes. And it has these common themes running through it. And those are the things that we need to pay attention to. And one of those themes is, is God's judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, tells us that, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That, he's gonna, that we're going to appear before him and he's going to judge us according to our works, it says. The Bible calls this the day of the Lord. It's called the day of the Lord. In Malachi 3, 2, oh, I have it written down here. This is what the prophet Malachi says, 700 years before Jesus. says this, Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? And what this prophet does, what this ancient prophet does is he, he gives us the question that we all need to ask, right? Will you be able to stand when that day comes? See, it's, it's so easy to dismiss that this isn't real. We don't, we, we don't like, it's uncomfortable to talk about, isn't it? And so we dismiss that it's not real or, or maybe we just deceive ourselves that, okay, it probably is real because I know I'm supposed to believe the Bible as a Christian. And so it probably is real, but I won't think about it and I'll just hope that it's fine. And so we think that, we think that listening to sermons is enough. We think that coming to church is enough. We think that being a good person is enough. But Paul says in Romans 2 that if our hearts are hard and we don't repent, we're actually storing up the wrath of God for ourselves. We're storing it up and, and that wrath's going to be revealed on the day of God's righteous judgment. And the reality is that if you, if you think that casual and comfortable Christianity are going to suffice, on the day of God's judgment, you're, you're going to discover that you were wrong. This is what happens to the foolish man's house, the house, that was, the house that was built on hearing God's word and disobeying them. He heard it, he did nothing with them, and when the storm came, the house fell. And it didn't, just, it didn't just fall. Jesus says great was the fall of it. It wasn't just a couple of roof tiles that came off or the chimney fell over. It was demolished. Great was the fall of it. It was completely destroyed. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he, he comments on this passage, and this is what he says about the foolish builder. He says, yet though he was industrious, okay, so he's industrious, he builds a house. He was foolish, and the crash was terrible. The sound was heard afar. The overflow was final and irretrievable. Many heard the fall, and many more saw the ruins, and they remained in a perpetual memorial for the results of that folly, which is satisfied with hearing and neglects doing. It's folly that, that hears God's word and neglects doing and, and your house is completely destroyed. Roman, or Revelation 14 gives us this picture of, of this, this metaphorical picture of, of God's judgment, this, this terrifying, utterly terrifying picture of hell. And he says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Uh, can you see why this is urgent? Can you see why it's so important that we do talk about this? Can you see why it's so important, that, uh, it's vital that we build our lives on this foundation of hearing God's word and being transformed by it? And I know we don't like talking about it. You think I want to stand up here and, and, and tell you about these things? Nobody wants to talk about judgment and, and God's wrath and hell. But you know what? 
I don't, you know what I don't want even worse? I don't want to be a false teacher. I, I want to be faithful to what God has sent here. I, I want to, Paul says in, in Acts, he says that, that he didn't shrink back from, from teaching the whole counsel of God. And maybe you'd rather I wouldn't talk about these things. But I love you. And, and because I love you, I need to be honest with you and warn you about the danger of building your house on the wrong foundation. So like imagine, imagine if, if you're in your house and you're asleep and someone's walking past and the roof's on fire. We're still with the building analogy. <laughs> Just trying to keep that alive. And the roof's on fire, but you're happy sleeping in your bed. And then this person sees your house on fire and he comes and bangs the door, smashes in the door, pulls you out of bed, wakes you up. Your house is on fire. Are you going to be mad with that person? No. You're going to be thankful for him. You're going to be thankful that person actually alerted you to this danger. You see, in order to fully grasp the infinite love and grace of Jesus and how great our salvation is, we need to not understand what just, not just what we're saved into, but what we're saved from. And if you're, if, if you're not a Christian, if you're not following Jesus, then you need to understand the danger that you're in. But also understand that that salvation from that danger is freely available. You just trust in Jesus, that, he, he, that God has made a way. And no matter how uncomfortable talking about God's judgment makes you, the truth is that we all want evil to be dealt with, right? We all, we all want evil to be dealt with. We want injustice to end. We want pain and suffering and, and cheating and murder and rape and famine and war. We want those things to end. Who doesn't want that? And that's what Jesus coming in judgment is. It's him finally dealing out justice on this cosmic scale. It's, it's, it's Jesus making things right. And we all want that, don't we? But the truth is that outside of Jesus, without this obedient faith, we're all on the wrong side of that judgment. Romans 3 tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one. Not even one. And so by ending a sermon this way, some people might be mad at Jesus. Jesus, you could have ended on a lighter note. And Jesus is like, I'm ending on the kindest note I possibly can. I love you, and so I'm telling you these things that are true. And so we need to make a choice. Are we going to be like the wise man? Are we going to hear and obey Jesus' words? And in that day, we'll stand. Or are we going to be like the foolish man and hear Jesus' words? And in that day, you'll fall. So we have the wise man and the foolish man, but there's a third man that these verses speak of. And that's the Christ man. It sounds like the Christ comma man. The Christ man. Um, the Christ man. Did I ruin it a wee bit there? Maybe ruined it. I don't know. We'll see. Look at verses 28. and This is how we're going to finish. Verses 28 and 29. Uh, when Jesus finished these sayings, so when Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount is it's like a mirror image to his introduction to the sermon. So you might remember like way back at the start, we see Jesus ascends the mountain. He sits down and he opens his mouth and begins to teach. And all these three things are pointing to someone who can speak with authority, someone who has, who has power to teach. And we see, the, we, we see the, uh, the, the, the mirror image of that. We see the authority of Jesus in, in people's reaction to his teaching. Firstly, we see that the words of Jesus are amazing. People are astonished. 
They couldn't believe what they were hearing. And, and the, the tense that's used for astonished here, it's, you don't need to know this, but it's the imperfect verb. So that means Rachel knew this. It, it, like, it, it keeps on going. So they went home being amazed. You know whenever you come out of the cinema and you're just like, what did I just watch? That's incredible. And you're walking home talking about it. That's what was happening here. Or you've been at a concert and you, it stays with you for days. That's what was happening. They were amazed and they went home amazed. Jesus Jesus blew their minds. They were stunned. They had never heard anything like this before. The words of Jesus are amazing. And secondly, the words of Jesus have authority. The teaching of Jesus were in contrast to the scholars, these these scribes, right? These other teachers had to rely on other people to give them authority. So they would look at other teachers and get them to agree with them. And, and when enough people agreed, then you had authority. So it's like if someone, an author today, writes a book. You might get loads of uh, really smart people to, to you know, write an um, endorsement of your book. And then that gives your book some authority. <laughs> but the difference is, the authority of Jesus didn't rely on anyone else. The authority of Jesus came because of who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the promised one of God. And, 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 and Matthew, who's writing this record, he's very cleverly pointing this out because this is right at the start of Jesus' time on earth or Jesus' ministry on earth, right? And Matthew's saying he's not just another teacher or another prophet or another scribe or a rabbi. He's the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And, and we saw like John showing us the, the transfiguration just these glimpses throughout Jesus' life of like, look who he really is, guys. Don't miss this. And Matthew has been with Jesus and, and he's writing this after Jesus is, 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 is risen again, ascended to heaven. And you can almost imagine him writing this account of the Sermon on the Mount and thinking, I'm going to point to the authority of Jesus. And this is what, this is, and listen to what Jesus says, his last words to his disciples after his resurrection, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Matthew's pointing to this. He's saying, look who this is. I'm showing my readers, I'm showing my listeners that this person who just preached these things are the, is the one to whom all authority has been given. And Jesus proved his authority, right? He wasn't like any other teacher. The crowds were right to be amazed. Nobody had ever spoken like him before. Nobody had ever taught with the authority of this person before. Nobody ever lived like this man, died like this man, or no, nobody ever rose from the dead like this man. And all of Jesus' teaching throughout his life is pointing to who he really is. The one who came to defeat sin. The one who came to defeat hell. And when Jesus died on the cross, tortured by human beings, but even more so abandoned by God, abandoned by his own father, you know what he was doing? He was taking on the judgment of God so that you and me never have to face it. Isn't that incredible? That the thing that he's warning us about, he says, I'm going to take that for you. Jesus bore the full force of God's wrath so that you and me would never have to. In theological terms, they talk about the wrath of God is turned away. It's turned away from us and onto God himself. Jesus was abandoned by his own father, God, so that you and me can be brought near to God. He faced hell so that you and me don't have to. This is, this, isn't that amazing? And when Jesus rose from the dead, I believe that 100%, rose from the dead after three days, he proved his authority because not even death could hold him. 
Not even death could hold them. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new sermon series, and we're going to be looking at um, these letters that Jesus wrote in the book of Revelation. Um, but in Revelation chapter 1, we get this amazing picture of, uh, I don't want to start going into, I don't want to preach next week's sermon, but uh, Revelation is a, a book of, of visions that, that Jesus gave to John, his disciple, his best friend. And, and this is some of the things that, this is how, uh, this is the vision that John receives of Jesus, which I just think hammers home his authority. This is from Revelation 1. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and makes us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion, authority. That's what that means, forever and ever. Amen. John keeps saying amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, even those who, who, who nailed him to the cross are going to see him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then John says, I love this, John breaks into his own little, like, what he's experienced. He says this, when I saw him, so when he sees his friend Jesus, when he sees his friend Jesus taking on the position of authority and of judge, this is what, he, this is what happens. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. This is what Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. Jesus took on our judgment. He bore the full brunt of the wrath of God. The wrath of God was turned away from us and poured on Jesus and all authority has been given to him. He holds the keys to death and hell. So here's the question. How are you gonna respond to this person with this authority? Are you going to hear his words and obey? Or are you going to hear and disobey? Let me pray for us.